traveling along with Jesus in the parables, and I was reminded when I came to chapter 18 of what the disciples asked. It's the familiar question that comes out of the back seat when we're traveling along with family. And what is that question? Are we there yet, right? We want, we're anxious to get there. We're anxious to know what we're going to find when we get there, to experience it. And uh, that's exactly sort of the level of response that the disciples give in Matthew chapter 18. They've been sort of looking out the back window uh, of, the, of the seat from where they've been viewing all the things that have been going on with Jesus, and they're starting to wonder, are we there yet? Is it time to set up the kingdom yet? They had seen Jesus heal thousands of deaf, lame, and blind. They had witnessed Him raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had calmed the storm, walked on water, revealed His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They had great fish stories to tell one another. They recalled how one day He just slipped out of the grasp of the angry mob because it wasn't yet time. And they even bragged a little bit when they said, remember when Jesus went in the temple and he turned over all those tables? And so they had a lot of great stories to tell. And with the building anticipation of what was going on, they cannot help but wonder who will get to ride shotgun at the next stop. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At the same time, the disciples came unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, perhaps you would not ask it this way, and with some hindsight, you're going to, you know, you have better understanding about everything that is to remain. Are we there yet? How will we know when we get there? And when we get there, how are we going to maximize this experience? And to answer the question of greatness, Jesus begins with those who are least among us, verse 2. And Jesus called a little child and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted, have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of attitude, and become as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them, you won't even get there with me if you don't have a change of heart. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. There is a special place in hell for people who abuse, take advantage of, and ruin the innocence of our children. And we see it at every level going on today. Well, there's, first of all, a need to rethink this question of greatness. Not only your concept of greatness, but how do we get there, right? Traditionally, we think of Jesus taking a child, right? You saw the snapshot, didn't you? Where he took the child and put him on his knee. You've seen that shot, that snapshot? I mean, it's somebody's imagination. Mark says he took the child in his arms. At any rate, we see the welcome 
that Jesus gives to children. And instead of preaching a sermon, Jesus just presents to us an example of humility. When the disciples were worried about honor, Jesus taught about humility. Everything about this was an example of the humility necessary in salvation. Christ calls the child, right? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He calls us. The child came without any hesitation. Jesus said, him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Childlike faith, taking Jesus at his word. Without faith, we know it's impossible to please God because if you come to God, you have to believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, Hebrews 11. Children can understand the truth of Jesus. From a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3. So listen again to verse 3. I say unto you, except you... Be converted. Change of heart, change of mind, change of attitude, and become as a child. You'll not get there with me. And so, this word conversion means a rethinking of greatness. Turn around, change one's course, change your mind. An unsaved friend If you would be saved, you must first have a change of mind about what you think it is or means to become as Christ or live with Christ or go to heaven or whatever you may describe it as. It's not found in you being good enough, great enough, but in coming to God humble as a child. And for those of you, perhaps the majority, I would almost assume, Here this morning, you, all of us, saved, believers, Christians, must have a change of mind about what it means to be great in the kingdom. The hardest thing about following Christ is that He always seems to require that we lay down the one thing that we are trusting in the most. To the disciples, do you remember what He said to them? Lay down your, your nets, right? That's your job. I mean, that's the thing you're depending on. He says, lay it down. To the rich man, he said, give away what? That's all your security, right? People, that's, we, how many times do you check your, you know, your 401 or your retirement, your bank accounts? How many times do you check that? Because that's your security, right? To the Pharisee, he says, lay down your traditions. To the chief priests and scribes, he says, you cannot trust in your works. And to all of us, he says, if any man will come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Christ gives further explanation about this humility in verse 4. Whosoever therefore shall shall humble himself as a child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom. That's That's how we're great. That's how we come to enjoy the kingdom. That's how we come to enjoy our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is by the humility understanding who God is, I'm not Him, and that I fully depend upon Him. I've often said I firmly believe it that pride keeps more people out of heaven than any other particular sin that sort of makes the headline. Pride keeps you putting it off until you give it one more try on your own, right? Pride holds you back for fear of what others might think. Like, you weren't raised that way, you know, why are you going to that church? Pride keeps 
hold of all you have accomplished and won't let it go. Pride says Christ is a crutch and he's just for old women and children, not for you. The world has taught us to think of ourselves first. By taking a child, Christ not only taught us to not think of ourselves first, but not to think of ourselves at all. A child doesn't have to be humble. That is a young child. We see it earlier and earlier. But a young child doesn't have to be. A young child has no, no thoughts about the greater world. They just trust in the moment. That's what Christ is calling us to do. Spurgeon wrote, the wisdom for a man to humble himself is that he will escape the necessity of being humbled. Humble yourselves, 1 Peter 5, therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Well, what's the effect of all this? Is that you will do for others without hesitation, without any consideration of what others might think. And oh, by the way, doing it for a child, you wouldn't expect anything in return. You don't, you don't do something for a child and expect them to give you something back. You, you hope for their obedience, some response, but they're not, they're not doing any payback for you. To receive one such little child is to love them, treat them with kindness, to help them in their time of need. To do this for the child is, in effect, to do this for Christ. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 25, Jesus said, Inasmuch as you've done it unto one of these the least, who have you really done it for? You've done it for Christ. And conversely, or on the opposite side, there in verse 6, I don't want to make too much of this, but it does get my ire up just a bit. There in verse 6, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones, it were better if a millstone were hanged about his neck and dropped in a deep lake somewhere. To offend is to put a stumbling block in the way which another might trip and fall, entice to sin, cause the person to no longer trust. A child by nature is trusting. And our society, again, I don't want to get off on too much, but our society is taking advantage of the trust of children and, and taking away any innocence they may have. I have zero tolerance for those in society who would prey upon our children. Your mind may go to a child abuser, a child molester. By the way, they are the least of criminals to ever be reformed. But now, take it, take it from that. I mean, we would all sort of say, that's wrong. But take it away from that and just put it into media today, right? All the television shows and all the media and, and even into our educational system, right? Less and less are we protecting our children more and more, the education, even the educational system? All the media, we know it to be true, are sexualizing our children at a younger and younger age. The effect of offending our children is that they are becoming less and less likely to trust in Christ. Who can they trust? You want to be great? You, you want to be great? Protect our children and those who are least among us. Pure religion, James said, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. But for the sins of our world, there is need for repentance. Verse 7 goes on. Woe unto the world because of offense. It must needs be that offenses come. Now, don't trip over that, but... Woe to that man by whom the offense come. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, 
Cut it off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands, two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels, you believe in guardian angels? Their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Woe to the world because of offenses. Woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Woe is the fatal consequence, and whosoever's name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. But it, not, it says it must be that offenses come. Not that it's necessary for such crimes to come against the weakest and helpless among us, but be warned, because that is, that is exactly the outcome of man without God. The depravity of man will always take us to such offenses. Do you want to be great? Defend the weakest, the helpless. But if you're willing to allow such sin to run rampant in the name of freedom of speech or whatever other freedom you want to talk about, you will, we will as a nation, our society, your family, we will have hell to pay. That's exactly what these verses are telling us. Consider that some are going to be withheld from heaven. You're not all going to get there, right? You don't just get there by being a good person. There's no assumption that we're all going to heaven. But which is better, to have two feet and two hands or a home in heaven? And by the way, when you get to heaven, you'll be made whole. Which is worse, to have two eyes or to be cast into hell? Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This body I cannot keep. Heaven I cannot lose. I would gladly lose some personal freedom to save the innocence of our children. I would gladly offend and be offensive if necessary to speak the truth on behalf of our children. Whether it's in a, a school setting, a church setting, or if the government looked at us and said, you can't say such things, that we would still say it. Because it is the truth. It is offensive. But without such thoughts, you'll not get to this place we call heaven. We cannot rationalize sin. We cannot ignore its effect. Or it will destroy our society. If society doesn't care, then that's all the more reason for us to roll up our sleeves and encourage the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. It's another reason there to repent or change our mind about these offenses to children. Who is, who is watching us? They're watching the children, and as a result, they're watching those who would offend them. Who's watching there in verse 10? Who's watching, in particular, the children? Angels, that's what it says. Now, who are these angels watching? I don't know. But in particular, they are watching over the little ones, the younger ones, the weaker ones. I don't know if you believe in guardian angels. I think there's something to it. Jewish tradition believed that every good man was given his own personal angel. Angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 11, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. 
David said, God shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. At the end of time, Matthew 13, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather them out of the kingdom, all that offend and them which do iniquity. Angels announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. John said, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Angels are real, and evidently they see everything you do, especially in relationship to strangers, to children, to young ones. We must repent of anything that would offend these who are least because angels are watching. They have an audience. These angels have a direct audience with the king before whom we will all appear. Well, if we will repent, then there is cause for rejoicing. And this brings us to this little parable of the lost sheep. And first, there is cause for rejoicing in this salvation. Literally, salvation is a rescue from sin. The Son of Man is come to seek, verse 11, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save those who are what? Not good, the lost. How do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than the ninety and nine which went not astray. We won't get into all of that, but just the rejoicing concept of Christ in the rescue of a sinner. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Remember, he's got a child on his knee. Well, this lost, these lost among us, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Those who have gone astray, we've forsaken the right way and all have gone astray, Peter said. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation is certainly cause for rejoicing. And you see his search for the lost there on down through verse 13. Now let's be clear, man on his own will never search for God. Let me say that again. Man on his own will never search for the God of the Bible. They're looking for some kind of greatness. They're looking for some kind of label. They're looking for something that will give them confidence. But they're not going to turn to the God of the Bible that requires humility and that they come as a child and forsake everything else. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God, Romans 13, or 3. And furthermore, man on his own would never be able to find this God of the Bible. Because no man can come to me except, John 6, except the Father who has sent me draw him. And that drawing, I think we mentioned it in Sunday school even this morning, that drawing comes by way of the Holy Spirit. You'll never find the forgiveness you desire until you understand that God alone can satisfy that nagging feeling in your heart that nothing in this world can satisfy. You'll seek me and you'll find me. When you seek for me with all of your heart. But I'm not a sinner, said the lady to the evangelist. Well, don't you want to be saved, he asked. Well, of course, she replied, but I'm not a sinner. You know, we kind of, you know, we look down upon such titles. Well, then he said, you cannot be saved. Jesus only died for sinners. 
Well, the woman then said, okay, but I'm a good sinner. <laughs> right? We're trying to hedge our bet there. Well, lady said to the evangelist, there are no good sinners. God cannot save you until you become conscious of the fact that you are a no good sinner in need of forgiveness. And after some pause, she exclaimed, oh, please forgive me. I know I'm a sinner, a no good, hell deserving sinner. And I do need Christ. Christ came unto his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, John 1. One last thought. There's cause for rejoicing because of the security that we have in this salvation. Even so, it is, verse 14 I read, even so it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Are you a child of God? He watches over you, protects you. He'll see that you get there, not because you're great, but because he's great and because he loves you. Luke concluded the parable this way. When he has found the one, he laid it on his shoulders and went rejoicing. Paul said, I take no pleasure in weakness, or excuse me, I take pleasure in weakness. For Christ said, when I am weak, then I am made strong. Do you want to be great? Then you must recognize your own weakness. Trust in Christ alone to make you strong. As long as you deny your weakness and claim to be great, you will not know the joy of that good shepherd, Jesus. Jesus taught us a lot of things about greatness when he takes a child from the midst of them and sets them on his knee. Do you want to be great? I would suggest to you this, and I know this oversimplifies it all, but listen to me and hear my heart clearly. Do you want to be great? Then build trust in some child that you might have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. Do you want to be great? Be the kind of person that can build trust in the life of a child, and they may be older, in the life of someone that they might, you might have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. You want our church to be great? Well, I think that's why we support ministries that, like uh, Camp Sunshine, like the camp down in Wilmington, like other missionaries that we've seen who work with children, because we know that we must come as a child. True greatness is displayed among the least. And so let me just give you this little litany of, uh, as a pastor to you. Working in the nursery, right, among the unsung circumstances of our life. I mean, where, how many times have I said it? Where did you first hear the gospel? Now, some of you were saved later in life. But the majority of people will first hear the gospel from the voice of a lady who is serving in some Sunday school class that never gets credit for anything that's going on. Teaching a Sunday school class, helping a widow in need, fixing something that no one else notices needs fixed, but you do it. Doing the little things, for as Paul said, in those things there is great reward in voluntary humility, Colossians 2. If you would be great, you must be servant of all, even as Jesus, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and gave himself freely for all. One evangelist said, as he preached this great sermon, he got home and told his family, he said, yeah, we had two and a half people saved tonight. Two and a half people. Well, they had their assumptions of what he meant, so they, they, said, uh, they, they said, well, it must have been a couple of adults and maybe a child, you know, two and a half. 
He said, oh, no, just the opposite. He said, two children came to Christ and an old man. That's the half. The child that comes to Christ has a lifetime of opportunity and service before them. Those are the ones we need to reach. We need to reach them before our schools reach them with their crazy thoughts. We need to reach them before the world and media reaches them with all the things that are being put before them today. We need to reach our children in their innocence that they might learn to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That will put them ahead of the curve. We can't wait until the world reaches them. We must do our part. Thank you for your support of things like the camp, for your volunteer spirit in nurseries and Sunday school classes and children's church. Thank you for all that you do in support of the children. Pray for young families. You have grandkids, right, grandchildren, new grandchildren coming into the world. We pray for them. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing one final song. Lord, we thank you for this message that is before us today to remind us about the condition that we must come to you in the first place. May we never outgrow the childlike faith that we first came to trust you so many years ago. May we remember it is still that, that humility, that childlike faith that makes us great in the kingdom. Help us not to jump forward and think, how can we be great? When will we get there? And when the kingdom is set up, how can I be at the front of the line? No. May we just come to heaven with a child in hand, maybe our own or the child of another, and we know that they heard about the Lord Jesus Christ because we went out of our way to tell them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.